tonight's episode, I think we're going to look at someone a little different. You know, we've got a lot of legends that we've been talking about over the last few episodes, and this guy's nothing short of a legend. Once again, you might not know his name, and you definitely probably don't listen to his style of music, but this particular gentleman this evening has one of the most rock and roll attitudes of anybody I think I've ever looked into. That includes, you know, our contemporary history. But this man was born long ago. I'm Pat. I'm Ian. Thank you for listening to Dude Check Out This Song. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking about a very special gentleman. Yep, the person we're going to be talking about is Charlie Poole. Oh man, this was some fun research. He was born Charles Cleveland Poole in Statesville, North Carolina. Born March 22nd, 1892. He was one of 13 children. <laughs> one of thir- where does he where does he land in the 13 children now? I couldn't find I couldn't find that. I looked. I honestly looked. Yeah, but so he's he's got he's got 12 brothers and sisters. Yeah. But he's he's somewhere in there. I I'd be interested to find out. Cause just because his mentality, I'm going to guess he's one in the younger generation. Uh, I Probably. Yeah, he's definitely not one of the older ones. So his family, was, they were cotton mill workers, and cotton mill mills were huge in North Carolina. Like, there were 600 mills within a 150-mile radius of uh, Charlotte. <laughs> wait, wait, 600 mills in a 150-mile radius? Yeah, so they were just everywhere. Cotton and, mills, you said? Cotton mills. Is there some sort of, like, I guess North Carolina is one of those southern states, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I guess that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and from a young age, he he worked for the cotton mills, like, I'm like six, you know, like when he could walk and move shit around. Like, he was a doffer boy. And if you don't know what a doffer boy is... I they, have no fucking idea what a doffer boy is. <laughs> I had to is. look that up, too. <laughs> they clean bobbins, prins, or spindles that hold fibers and such. You know, basically stuff to weave fabric together, and he would just change them out. Oh, like, so, like, the things that thread are held on, like the... Yeah. I think those are called bobbins, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, bobbins, perns, or spindles. Yeah. Yeah, I I guess I kind (laughs) of understand what that is. If you hear spindle, you can think of a spindle. Yeah. Yeah. So he uh, would take the empty ones and replace them with new ones. I hope they didn't have him feeding any of these things into like heavy machinery, but I sure as hell they probably did. (laughs) Oh, yeah, of course. And because of this, he didn't get much education. Like, gasp. And right in 1917, when he was 25, he had to sign his draft card with the mark of an X. That's how little education he got. He was pretty illiterate. Now that I'm thinking about it, have we covered anybody who we've been like, this guy had a really good education? Uh, not around this time. No, 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 we did. Uh, Mayo. Oh Mayo yeah, Mayo. had a good, uh, good. Yeah, that's good right. He was a college but, coach, so yeah. Well, he went to Brown. Yeah. So obviously, that's a that's a lot of learning right there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but he also wasn't a musician, so you yeah, know. I guess that that's yeah. So the, none of the musicians have an education at this point. I guess it's one way or the other, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. And between 1982 and 1912, uh, his family moved a lot. Maybe that's how he got his. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, rambling tendencies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, they're always searching for better wages and better working conditions. Cause there was with 600 cotton mills, there's probably some pretty sketchy ones. Oh, I could assume so. Well, I mean any, any cotton mill at a six year old work there in North Carolina <laughs> in the twenties or whatever it is. Or Not no. even the twenties. Oh wait, the, that's right. Yeah. The so tens it, and teens. Yeah. So it, it, I mean, if he's six years old, it would be whew, shit. It wouldn't even be 1900 yet. It'd be 1899. Uh, yeah. Or yeah. Yeah, they just, they needed money. I mean, with 
12 kids or 13 kids. I mean, that, that is kind of so fucked up. <laughs> oh, we need money. Let's make this six year old go work. <laughs> Mommy's going to drop you off at your job. And then I'm going to go too. don't forget to clock in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so at the age of nine, that's when he started learning to play banjo. Oh, well, I mean, that's definitely better. Yeah. Uh, he was taught by his older uh, second cousin, Daner Johnson. Didn't do anything, you know. Daner? Yeah. And he played a, a three-finger banjo style like Fred Van Epps and Bess Osman. Oh, good yeah, old we, Bess Osman. That, that we might have covered him in a scrap episode, uh, <laughs> but we know him, yes. And due to his poor background, he made his first banjo out of a gourd. A gourd? Yeah. Wait, for real? Yeah. Like a like a gourd gourd like I, a, I found this like a se- squash yeah I found this in uh, several sources so yeah. oh sweet lord I I don't even so we talked about last episode how the importance of like folklore is like with a little bit of lies the the the, the tall tales that make somebody big is that even worth making a tall my first banjo was made out of a gourd like no definitely no. not you don't make that up to look cooler i'm pretty sure that like probably happened just because of like you you just couldn't you don't make that up yeah that, that doesn't make you better you you know if you want to make yourself sound better you make it out of i don't know i don't know what would be cool to make a banjo out of in the 1900s <laughs> i don't i honestly uh, matchboxes we've got dirt <laughs> <laughs> yeah i uh, mean what did they have shit a gourd starting to look pretty good at this point he, he could he probably stole some thread from the cotton mill and strung it up that way too yeah I know. <laughs> well okay well he eventually did uh buy himself a real banjo for buck 50 yeah no I, I, <laughs> Well, I mean, so the, it depends on which one we're talking about here, because I uh, have a little notes here on the Orpheum banjos. They're they're classically what he is known for playing on, but I'm going to assume he didn't obtain his for a few years at this point. Yeah, probably not. Yeah, and uh, they're far from being made out of uh, out of gourds or hey, any, any, are you sure? any sort of vegetable. I, I'm going to assume that these are not vegetable-based uh, banjos involved here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I love, uh, I love my vegetable banjo. <laughs> so, vegan through and through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My, my, my banjo's all vegan. In about uh, 1897, two uh, New York instrument makers, Lange and, or Lange and Rettberg, they bought a banjo factory from somebody called J.H. Buckaby. I, I almost thought I read that wrong, but no, I'm reading that right. It is Buckaby. J.H. Buckaby. Uh, Those are some awesome sounding banjo names. So apparently at the time, Buckaby was a huge thing. Like he would personalize banjos for all the biggest banjo players. So he's actually a super successful banjo player up until this point. Oh, really? And nobody knows why he sold the factory to these guys. Uh, Maybe he was desperate for money. I mean. Yeah. So either way, they continued the tradition. They made very special banjos for the best banjo players. And they would replace the insignia for the company at the top of the head with the banjo player's name and do other sort of personalizations. Like oh, that. that's pretty cool. Yeah. So they made like handmade pieces for all the biggest people. Well, that's awesome. I didn't know that. Yeah. So and I mean, they, they did it for a bunch of people like these huge names that apparently I'm supposed to know who they are. People like Farland Foot. Uh, Farland Foot? Yeah. Farland Foot. Converse, Bruno. Wait, wait, wait. Converse, like the shoe company? <laughs> these are supposed to be famous banjo players. Uh, Bruno, Mather. I assume that these are last names. Oh, okay. So, uh, and then J.C. Dubson. 
GC Dubson, excuse me. Mm, oh, yeah. Now I've heard of yeah, him. Yeah, legendary uh, yeah. GC Dubson. I know that guy. Uh, but apparently at the time, these are the, the that's the name of the of all the people who are good and cool at banjo. <laughs> this is the, <laughs> the, the, the extreme list. I wonder how much blackface was in that. I don't even want to think about it. A lot of this is still just extremely racist. We've moved forward like a generation in what we've like. Been, not even. Like not even. Maybe a decade. Yeah, like about half a generation in our little timeline with this season. And already like it's getting so significantly less racist, but I don't feel like it's going to get any better anytime soon. Well, we better not cover cover any more minstrels. <laughs> <laughs> but either way, uh, up until this point, Buck had lit or Buck a B had literally been the largest producer of banjos in the Western Hemisphere in the post-war banjo manufacturing era. Oh, okay. Yeah, I I mean, there's a specific era that there's a the post-war banjo manufacturing era. I assume it has to do with like how banjos were made or something like that. Yeah, they're probably higher quality. There's probably better techniques. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, just it, essentially these two continue the tradition on. So exactly when r began making the Orpheum is specifically unknown. But in, in 1903, there, uh, the, uh, somebody named W.B. Farmer. A lot of these people just have initials and then their last name. I assume that's just kind of simplification for all the paperwork. Yeah, maybe. But yeah, W.B. Farmer. Or, or because they treated their workers like shit and they didn't want anybody to find out who they were. You don't know my first or middle name. Good luck. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is it is pretty crazy. But it, yeah, it's literally like W.B. Farmer. He got this patent. Got That's a made here. up name. That does not sound real. So he got the, the patent number 724833. And this is apparently a new style of tone ring. And it sits on brackets that are attached to the rim of the banjo. And uh, this is what makes Orpheum banjos sound very specific in the way they do. Okay. It makes them uh, apparently a lot quieter, but they huh. have an interesting like metallic uh, resonation slash hum to them. But it's not like like a resonator would be. Well, right, because didn't softer. Charlie Poole play an open back banjo too? Yes, he, d- he did. But it just had this, I think, he, I'm not sure if his specifically had this rim on it, but it said that all the Orpheums have a distinct sound and they all use this rim. So I'd assume that his used it as well. Okay, gotcha. Banjo upgrade. Yeah, banjo upgrade. Yeah, time to put this ring on your thing. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was not meant to be as dirty as it sounded, but whatever, we'll keep it. Uh, (laughs) uh, The same guy got a bunch of other patents, but the company never actually used them. So nobody knows if WB Farmer was an employee for the company or if if it was just, you know. Oh, I was right. It is a fake fake name. (laughs) (laughs) I'm assuming it's probably a real person, but whether or not they should have been using that patent is up in the air. I'm not a banjo expert or anything like that, but I assume there's just not enough information. You know, and then apparently uh, Lange left eventually and would continue to make the Orpheum until 1921. So the likelihood is that if he got it early enough, he played the R&L version. But if he got it late enough, like after 1929, he would ha- just have the Lange version. So they're, they're like two distinctly different versions. And apparently the R&L version is like penultimate comparatively. Okay. Like the original version is apparently way better. But Lange would continue to make just the best banjos for his era all the way up until 1935. The large Orpheum 3 and the uh, Orpheum 3 Special, which is what uh, our gentleman plays here. They would be Charlie the, Poole. Yeah. Charlie Poole plays the the what? The, the Orpheum 3, you <laughs> the said? Orpheum, the Orpheum 3 Special. Oh, man, that actually sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, it, it, it is, does play or sound pretty cool. Let me make sure, because there's also an Orpheum 5. And they're all named like so similar in this point. Like it's really hard to tell. You can actually look at their like stuff and it's just numbers and Orpheum and then like some other thing. 
special yeah special or some of it's just jazz and you know but they're just the best sellers <laughs> uh, jazz i i went and tried to find some prices i thought you know maybe time machine go back get myself a banjo that's as good as charlie pools yeah and so it looks like that the special was sold for 135 dollars in 1929 that was the oh, man what's that convert to i don't know i i really should have done the conversion on that but uh it is it is going to be a lot it's going to be a couple hundred bucks, but it's actually probably going to be comparative to what a mo- modern banjo probably actually costs. Now that I think yeah, maybe, about it. maybe around 600 bucks. Yeah. But like I said, the, the Orpheums are not noted for their extreme volume. They weren't really like live instrument play. Huh. They were, but they were one of the better recording banjos. Okay. So he recorded with it probably, but didn't uh, I, play with it live though. No, he's well known for playing this one banjo. So huh. I assume he just used more mics or something like that. He didn't have mics back I, then. I don't know. I, this is this is what I'm this is what I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> he developed a unique three finger picking technique for the banjo as a teenager. One night out at the bar drinking, he uh, met with a professional baseball player. He bet that he could catch his fastball barehanded. Oh, that sounds like something you would only make claim to while you're at the bar drinking. I mean, he did play a lot of, Charlie Poole did play a lot of baseball, so. And he also did a lot of drinking. Yes, a lot of drinking. And so when he threw the fastball, he closed his hand a little early, permanently broke his thumb, never went to the doctor to get it healed or set or anything. So it healed permanently curled towards the banjo and he had to develop a new style that way. So it was probably something that was completely like healable. You just had to have your fingers reset. Maybe not completely healable, but like, you know, at least something he could recover from, but he just never did. Yeah. So he just did Django Reinhardt for the rest of his life with the other hand. Yeah. And he wasn't even really upset about it. He was more upset about losing the bet than he was fucking up his hand. This guy is legendary. Like I said, he is (laughs) gotta be the most rock and roll banjo hillbilly player I have ever like read about. And I'm going to start to think that, you know, a lot more of them are probably like this. Yeah. I mean, I I haven't done enough history research on, you know, banjo players and stuff, but... Yeah, we haven't done enough hillbilly rednecks. uh, Yeah, we're going to definitely uh, dip into some more hillbillies moving forward, so... Yeah, but on the story, Charlie never really liked working in cotton mills. Gasp. Shocking. Oh my God, I don't like this hard manual labor. I think we covered (laughs) this in another episode. Nobody likes... Nobody liked working in the cotton Uh, mills. If you did, you That was our last episode. Yeah, but Sunhouse, because Sunhouse didn't like. Well, he he was a farmer too. It was even harder. Yeah, I know. Like, I, I'm just I'm sorry, but if you if you lived in the 1910s and you literally liked working in your mill and doing yeah. nothing else, you suck. <laughs> like, I'm not judging you from a hundred years away, but I am. You suck. Well, there probably wasn't a whole lot of options back then, but Charlie did see his banjo and his voice as a ticket out of the mills. So, you yeah. know, I mean, that's that's the best way to do it. I mean, it, musicians are one of the best ways to, like, become famous without any sort of education at this time. Yeah. I mean, it, still to this day. So at the age of 19, he married 17 year old Ma Gibson. But this life didn't really suit him. Ma Gibson? Uh, Maud. M-U-A-D-E. Uh, I was like, we got too many Ma's going on here, man. <laughs> no, Maud Gibson. And yeah, he did not like being married. Or maybe he didn't like her, or he just, you know, didn't want to stay. I don't know. He probably liked being out drinking and making bets against professional baseball <laughs> players for things with life-altering injuries and much more. He was actually rambling rambling around Canada with other hobos and the like when Maude gave birth, birth to their son, James Clay. Oh, my he God. Was, he wasn't even home. And, you know, 
she said enough of this and divorced him a couple months later. After the boy was born? Yeah, after the boy was born. Yeah, like you weren't even there for that. You're not going to be there for the rest of it. Just get out. And I got a quote from Maude. She said, he couldn't be still. You couldn't have a conversation with him as he was always on the go. I'll bet he never stayed anywhere in his life for more than a few hours at a time. He was in Canada rambling when our son was born. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, rock and roll, I guess. Well, I mean, how many rock and rollers abandon their kids for a while? All of them. (laughs) I mean, technically, rock and roll is abandoning your child by design. (laughs) Unless you're taking them on tour. And that's kind of more of a piece of shit move. I'm not really sure which is worse. And so after the divorce, he kept doing the same thing. He'd hobo from village to village. Never learned to drive a car. He'd have to walk or hitchhike to get him get to places to busk. Yeah, well, I mean, that's hillbilly life for you. Yeah. And he'd play in train stations, courthouses, and mill gates. Why, why those places specifically? Probably the best busking places, you know? Like people, people going around. in and out of them all the time? I, I don't know. Like, I, I could see in the 1900s people going in and out of those places a lot. Yeah, well, especially like mill gates. I mean, it's all guys, you, uh, you know, similar to him, grew up in the same lifestyle. And he's yeah. there entertaining them like, hey... I know you're going to work. You got money. Ding, yeah. ding, 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 ding. <laughs> My wife left me. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> and so sometime around 1918, 1919, he met a club-footed mountain man and coal miner named Posey Roar. And, uh, you know, they became pretty good friends. And at some point, he took Charlie home to his uh, hometown in Franklin County, Virginia. Fun little fact here about this gentleman. His great-grandchild will be the biographer of Charlie Poole. Yes, that is true. That, that's where I got a lot of these sources from, too. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a pretty interesting fellow and like really did some in-depth research. I, I found some information <laughs> on some of the stuff that he found, and we're going to have yeah, a little he, conversation. He talked to that. some cool people. So anyway, Charlie and Roar went to work for a moonshiner named Homer Pilpot, Philpot. Philpot. Yeah. And so, you know, while they were waiting for the corn to distill, they would jam out in the middle of the woods because, you know, it takes a while. Yeah, because you're moonshining. And (laughs) what else are you going to do in the middle of the woods while moonshining? You're, of course, going to play your banjo. I'm following this train of logic really good here. Roar was a a fiddle player. Well, of course. Yeah, we got to have one of each. You got to have a fiddle player. I'm sure Joe Bob came by every once in a while with his jaw harp and, you know. (laughs) And so with this money... Roar got his club feet fixed. And oh, he got his club foot fixed? Yeah. Okay, that that makes me smile. <laughs> and Charlie got a new banjo, probably the Orpheus. Yeah, the Orpheum. Respe- Orpheum. Yeah. Orpheus, thinking of the Matrix. Yeah, it's not a Matrix banjo. <laughs> not that I'm aware of. None of my research led me to any uh, Matrix conclusions. Look at this but... banjo. This world isn't real. Yeah, exactly. It's a glitch in the banjo. Anyways. <laughs> With them doing this, they got they became even closer, and at some point, Roar took him to uh, Spray, North Carolina, to meet his sister Lou Emma. Oh! And in December 1920, Charlie and Lou Emma got married and started playing music together as a duo. So, did he take him all the way across the country to bang his sister? No, I was uh, just like the next state over, pretty much. You know? Okay, I mean they were in Virginia, North Carolina. Like, hey, you want to cross the border and plow my sister? And he's like, <laughs> yeah, that sounds great, dude. <laughs> Something like that. I don't know. They were. It was pretty vague. So maybe it was like, oh man, you said it was an order of months until they were married, right? I mean, I I don't know the exact dating. It. I couldn't find like when they specifically moved to Spray, but it didn't seem like it took too long. Hmm. 
So in the winter of uh, 1924 or 1925, hard to tell like specific dates, it seems like when, when researching this, it was sometime around there. Charlie and Roar played a series of fiddle conventions organized by a preacher claimed to be raising money from an orphanage in Bluefield, West Virginia. And even though Charlie Poole and Posey Roar won a lot of these, the preacher skipped out on all their prize money. Yeah, I, I, I knew something was coming up when you said claiming to. Yeah. So what a great guy. This is this is our asshole of the episode. Really. Yeah, so this is our asshole spotlight. This is, is our this asshole dude, spotlight. Do, do we even have a name or is it just some pretend guy? I couldn't find a name. Just yeah. some, he might have been a preacher. He might not have. He might have used his real name. Probably not, because it kind of sounds like he was like, yeah, we're going to help these orphanage. Come play these competitions. Yeah. All right, where's our money? Uh, I got to go back to my trailer. And then you never saw him again or something. I don't know. Yeah. So that's that, that guy, uh, asshole of the evening. Asshole of the evening. If you're out there listening, ghost, you suck. And so obviously with him skipping out, they really wanted to make money playing music. I mean, who doesn't who plays music, really? I mean, that's the ultimate dream. So in the summer of 1925, with no invitation, his only goal getting a record deal, Charlie Poole found his way to the Columbia Phonograph on Broadway in New York. Now, considering he couldn't read, imagine how hard it is to read the street signs. Oh, man. (laughs) What a weird... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> no think about that because it's like yeah just go down um uh you know broadway go which street is that you know that one right down there you'll you'll read the street sign yeah the one that no. starts with the whatever letter <laughs> that starts with <laughs> yeah oh oh you mean the the one that's shaped like boobs <laughs> yeah. that's that's how i'm gonna do it now <laughs> well i mean that's how i learned to read <laughs> but it worked though they got a record deal and on July 27th, 1925, Charlie and Roar, along with a guitar player named Norman Woodleaf. Oh, good old Norm. They recorded four sides on Columbia. And I just got to give you guys this so you can kind of see how successful these were, too. So a good seller came around 5,000 copies sold, and a hit was around 20,000. On their first release, Don't Let Your Deal Go Down and Can I Sleep in Your Barn Tonight, Mister, sold 102,000 copies. Whoo! And by the way, check out "Can I Sleep in Your Barn Tonight, Mister?" It's, oh, uh, that's my that, that's my dude. Check out this song. Oh, oh you son I of just, a bitch! I just jacked your shit, <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen. I'm announcing Ian's. But uh, dude, check out this song. It's <laughs> stepping on my dude. Check out the song, bro. Yeah, no, check me. <laughs> And so their second one, "The Girl I Left in Sunny Tennessee," and "I'm the Man Who Rode the Mule Around the World," sold sixty five thousand copies. I'm the man who rode the meal around the world. That's yeah, a song? That's a song. Oh, I, how did I miss that one in my research? That <laughs> sounds like know. an amazing song. Yeah, I saw that and had to immediately look it up because that's uh, it was pretty good. What but... a ridiculous claim. Like, <laughs> seriously, if you're going to... Okay, uh, once At least again, a horse or something. We're, we're, we're talking about lying to make your, yourself look better. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'm starting to think that he did come up with, I made my first banjo out of a gourd and did like lie about that because also he would write a song about being the first man to write it. I mean, I get it. It's probably fictional. It's a song. But Jesus Christ, ride a <laughs> mule around the world? Hell yeah. I'm not I sailed around the world nope. or... You he know. rode a, mu- a mule around the world. Man, and okay, so Charlie Poole, you are a madman. I came up with an alternative for my dude. Check out the song. You should check out "Can I Sleep in Your Barn, Mister?" But you should also check out "The Girl I Left in Sunny Tennessee." Oh, there we go. There we go. And I recovered. 
And he, he made the, the dude check out this song recovery and ran the dude check out this song sports ball into the goal area. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the crowd roars. With them selling 167,000 copies of their first four sides, they got paid 75 bucks and no royalties for the recording. Just just here's 75 bucks, bitch. Get out of my well, office. I think I think that was the deal at the beginning because they didn't really know if it would sell or not. So they're like, we'll pay you 75 bucks to do this. And then we'll we get see what, what happens. Yeah, yeah. We, and we get what you, it sells. And if you're good, we will bring it back. Exactly. Well, it sold a lot. So Columbia convinced Charlie to keep recording for them. And they came with a much better deal. They paid him. And maybe this is just him or for the whole band. I'm not really sure. But they paid $150 per song. One and a half cents royalty and traveling expenses. So I'm wondering if some of those traveling uh, expenses were booze. One and a half cent royalty? Yeah, one and a half cent royalty. (sighs) So probably for every record sold, he got a penny and a half. Oh, man. How's he going to spend all that? Oh, <laughs> I'm sure he can find cheap enough booze. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it all goes. Well, I mean, a penny and a half per what? How many albums did you say he sold? Sold? Oh, I got that in here. I haven't talked about. Oh, all. sorry. Um, but well, the first the first four sides he sold 167,000 uh, copies. Yeah, well, so, so you you convert that to penny and a half, and it's not so bad. <laughs> I mean, it's all right. <laughs> I mean, okay. yeah, it's 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 hillbilly booze money. Well, the the real money was probably in the playing anyway, so having traveling expenses. uh, Yeah, I think that's a huge thing, yeah. Oh, and I found it. He recorded 76 more sides. Whoo-wee. Yep. Yeah, that's crazy, man. Oh, yeah. And actually, like, some of it's funny, too, because he didn't write all of these songs. I mean, 67 sides in four years. I mean, that's a lot. Yeah, that's fucking ridiculous, (laughs) dude. Yeah, that's like, what's the math on that? Because one... uh, well, I guess it would just be six, uh, 76 songs since it's just one side. For some reason, I was thinking it was double. I was thinking a whole 78. But Yeah. Yeah, and so he had like 20 songs that came from like traditional folk. And there's actually 37 songs that came from unknown, art- unknown artists from Tin Pan Alley. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And so then, he brought a lot of people up with him. Yep. And I've actually got several dude check out the songs. Well, from, fucking from hit me area. with them, dude. Check out this song, Master. Yeah, well, the first one is If the River Was Whiskey. Yeah, I like the name of that song. I, it's a, it's I, I listened to song. Charlie Poole the whole time I was doing all my research for this oh, episode. Yeah. Well, and my, mine would occasionally go to some other places. But yeah, for the most part, it was pretty much Charlie Poole. And then I've got Hungry Hash House. And it's just about being poor and starving and actually getting food. Oh, so it's not like a hash house like we would think of like a crack house and no. not hanging out doing hash with the windows boarded up? <laughs> no, I mean, if the, I, I maybe I should have dove deeper into lyrics. It could be, but I just kind of assume like hash is in food, so. Oh, well, I mean, hey, that's what a hash house is. I, <laughs> well, I'm t- not the hash house master here. He talks about eating a rare steak and, and butter with uh, red hairs in it, so. I don't know. If, but, I don't know which way that goes. That I mean, that sounds like it could be crackhead life, you know, like <laughs> oh, I couldn't even cook my steak, and then my redhead crackhead, you know, roommate got hairs in the butter. <laughs> it he he sang it like it was a good thing. So oh, okay. I don't know. Well, I mean, and then and then I got goodbye booze, you know, because a song about a drunk quitting drinking. You know, I mean, you got to have that. It was noted in multiple places that he played that with such thick and upward irony, like. <laughs> The band probably wasn't even sober on stage, so he, like I, it doesn't sound like he ever planned on quitting drinking. Yeah, anyway. he ne- he never slowed down. And then for the last one, 
take a drink on me you know probably like one of his more known songs but it's a that one's a really good place to start when you're checking out charlie pool and so one of his reasons for being successful is you know he picked a lot of good sidemen for his band obviously he had a posy roar at least up until he left the band in 1928 yeah and so there might be a slight ash hole Asshole, asshole, assholeness to uh, Charlie Poole right here. Yeah, uh, this this part of the story is something I ran into too. Yeah, Columbia gave Charlie a bunch of royalty checks to give to Roar, and he decided to take those checks and spend it on liquor instead. Yeah, the, it, it was literally stated in multiple places that he spent that money on booze. Yeah, so and that you know, obviously being married to Rory's sister Lou Emma. Kind of soured their relationship. I don't think they ever divorced, but I don't think their relationship was ever the same after that. Yeah, I mean, well, you don't steal from family unless you're a drunk hillbilly rock and roll banjoist. Yeah, and so he ended up replacing uh, Roar with two different ban- uh, with banjo with two different fiddlers at at some point. Lonnie Austin and Odell Smith. I didn't really look too much into these guys. I think they recorded with some good people, but I just kind of skipped them over a little bit, you know. They're both born in North Carolina, and they did different things, but didn't look them up too much. And on the first four sides, Norman Woodleaf was the guitar player uh, who played on that, and he was talented, but he was soon replaced by Roy Harvey, played guitar with his thumb and first two fingers, and really helped add bass runs to the band. So if you listen to any recording after those first four sides, you can hear the bass notes on the guitar, and it actually adds a little more depth to the music. Oh, like the new guy. The new guy knew how to play his low end better, and yeah, and really well, because pro- I think I think he did more of like a flat pick style or something. Oh, okay, yeah, or, yeah you know, really. probably played with his hands, but did like a claw hammer or something like that. Didn't didn't really see much on his playing style, but well, in a lot of those early like uh, like hillbilly and uh, country style musics, you hear a lot of that like heavy top string, like like keeping the rhythm. Yeah, well, it's really just keeping the bass because you know they didn't have a bass player. It was just. It was just guitar, fiddle, and banjo, and yep. it's, uh, the banjo and fiddle are pretty high. Like, yeah, they're they're, they're, yeah. they're not bassy instruments. <laughs> they're definitely not. They're so barely rhythm instruments. Definitely so. needed a little bass in there. And interesting story: Roy Harvey was discovered by them while he was uh, working a job running a streetcar from Bluefield to Princeton. And at the end, and he got to know them, you know, along the way because they would, you know, bounce around there. And at the end of one of his runs, he ran into him. And borrowed Woodleaf's guitar and jammed with Charlie and Royer. Harvey would stay with Charlie till Charlie's death. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> <laughs> but can you imagine uh, Woodleaf? He was like, "They're j- oh, that sounds really good. That's my guitar too." It's oh, it was like he was like, "Hey, can I borrow your guitar?" And they just start jam with him. And then afterwards, uh, Charlie Poole goes, I like you better. You're out. Yeah, no, like, Can I use your guitar to get you fired real quick? One sec. I know that you're in this band and you, you know, you're friends with all these people and really close, but look what I can do. I don't know why they all sound like banjos when they're. Charlie Poole really didn't want to look like a, bil- a hillbilly. That's why they were always dressed in fine suits and bow ties. Yeah. But his hell raising and drinking, you know, Pretty much took care of that hillbilly image for him. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that's one of the big things. He would live on long into the future. One of the biggest takeaways, uh, one of the things that y- you will really learn to, you know, remember about Charlie Poole is he was rock and roll before there was rock and roll. 
you may have been a thief and you know i'm not on this podcast we don't recommend you steal from people because theft is bad especially fellow musicians because they got it hard enough yeah i'm i mean let's we don't have to designate don't steal from people it's an asshole move but other than that i'm gonna specify if you're gonna steal don't steal from musicians okay but uh you know other than that Rock and roll attitude really goes a long way. He uh, he may have been kind of an asshole to people in his life and did a lot of other things, but all of his music stands really true, and you can even feel like the energy resonance to this day. You can tell his his bullshit attitude or no bullshit attitude. I guess is well. I mean, I don't know if he didn't have a no bullshit attitude because he, he was said to be really funny and silly and yeah, you know, having I mean, a good I, wild time. He's, I guess he is a bit of a joker in ways yeah. too. You know, he's he's got that class clown figure to him. If he definitely you, does. He's just a drunk class clown, really. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, you know, there's there's he's got the lovable drunk hobo feeling about him, and you know, there's there's <laughs> really nothing. Don't you just love those uh, uh, drunk hobos that are on your sidewalk nowadays? <laughs> yeah, no, there's there's no longer the modern image of the lovable drunk hobo who's just no, wandering really. about the world. Uh, yeah, I mean. Bring it back, hobos. <laughs> get rid, get rid of the crack. Bring back the bindle. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> bindle and banjo. Come on now, guys. You're slacking. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Bindle and banjo. Way less methamphetamines and crack and heroin and crime and <laughs> violence. Well, the violence can stay as long as it's drunken violence against each other. <laughs> yeah. I mean, whatever. The the. <laughs> I guess they weren't they weren't exactly the most nonviolent people. So, so in 1929, a common theme among the people we've been talking about so far, the Great Depression hits, and he doesn't sell as well. Yeah, last, I feel like it's 1929 to 1931. It's just yeah, it's, it's that it, was the tough period. I mean, for everybody in the country. Well, it's a Great Depression, yeah. so I get why. But it's it, that era. Of, it's you can almost tell how popular the people were by how late they make it into the Depression, right? He didn't make it long. His last two recordings sold only 2,000 copies. Oh, well, that's only 30 bucks or something. That's my best <laughs> estimation of a penny and a half for... Well, no, well, oh, for the penny. You got to remember, though, he made 150 bucks per song, too, so... Oh, well, shit. Yeah, probably spent that pretty fast, though, boozing. But anyway, he soon found himself back in the spinning rooms, you know, working in the cotton mills, making twelve twenty a week. Twelve twenty a week. So twelve twenty a week. So do we have a year or any time scale on when he's back working the time or uh, in the in the mill? It is, but it's really muddy, and that's why I didn't include it because some say it's nineteen thirties when he's back working in the mill. It's during the depression, though. Yeah, it's definitely during the depression. The because his last recording I think came out around nineteen thirty, and that's when he you know they were like, "We're done. See ya." Yeah, the, the, it's nice. Thanks, hillbilly guy. You're, you're drunk and mean, and we we don't have enough money for anybody, so yeah, go work in the cotton mill. <laughs> and, you know, didn't like that, obviously. And in the early months of 1931, he's given a chance. Charlie Poole was asked to play music in a film. He was given money by the film studio to purchase a train ticket to L.A. He never did. He took that money and spent it on six weeks of hard boozing and partying. Wait, hold on. So he was supposed to go to the event and he just like, nope. And then yeah, he, he was just... supposed to record music for a movie. Like, for... and, they, yeah. <laughs> and so they're like, here's money for a train ticket. And he's like, oh, now I have money. I can booze again. Oh, my sweet Lord. That's amazing. <laughs> so well, he, did, he was he just didn't even care. Like, no. Well, this epic bender led to his death. Oh, so it was he kind of 
I mean, when people do stuff like that, you kind of feel like they knew it was coming. Like, this is... Uh, someone knew it was coming. So on the morning of May 21st, 1931, Poole was at his sister's house when she declared, Old Charlie's been drunk a lot of the times, but this time Old Charlie is going to kick the bucket. Later that day, his heart gave out from drinking too much. Wait, so his sister... One of his sisters. His sister predicted his death the day it happened? Apparently. This is a quote from my main reference. Oh, well, I mean, that's that's pretty interesting. I yeah. mean, so, like, so there we go with the folklore lie. Like, you want to be like, <laughs> did, is that made up? Is that, like, something that uh, something that was added well, later? It came, it came or... from an interview, so who really knows? She might have just put it in her head that she said that over the years, because as humans, we tend to do that anyway, you know? Yeah, we, I mean, we it, lie to ourselves and we think that lies the truth. I mean, well, and so. you got, we have to remember, like, the, even spiritualism was a huge thing back then. So they were still talking about like seances and ghosts constantly and things. So I yeah. think it's it's less weird for people to make really weird claims like that back then. Yeah, and Charlie didn't make it long. He you know, he was only thirty nine years old when he died. <laughs> well, uh, so. I found a, an interesting little portion of information that I really want to share with you guys. Charlie Poole's funeral, while, it, you know, the, you could say what you want, the technical information about it, which, you know, Ian may have some technical information to share afterwards. This anecdote reads more like a Sunday afternoon joke. And so I'm just going to try and phrase it in that manner so that you guys can really feel it the way I felt it when I heard it the first time. During Charlie Poole's funeral... One of the mourners, whether or uh, whenever the or minister would start, would start wailing. Charlie Poole is gone. He's been taken from us. Charlie Poole is gone, and he would wail and fall down, and he would continue wailing multiple times. And every time the parishioner had to come down off the stage and calm the man down. <laughs> he, oh no, Charlie Poole is gone. Charlie Poole's gone. Whatever, and, whatever <laughs> shall I do? And so, uh, so when the minister for the final time uh, got the man calmed down, and he walked back up and he starts his sermon. Apparently, and this is supposed to have really happened. The man jumped up for one final time and said, "And I quote: Charlie Poole was a banjo picking son of a bitch." <laughs> <laughs> and that was the last, the last outcry from this gentleman, whoever it might have been at Charlie Poole's funeral. If they didn't already know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just in case you guys at the funeral didn't know, he was a banjo picking son of a bitch. So I'm gonna have dude check out this quote with banjo picking son of a bitch, Charlie Poole, <laughs> Charlie. <laughs> Uh, so the minister daughter would actually tell this story to the, who we talked about the biographer and great nephew. Sorry. I think I said great grandson or something earlier, but it's the great nephew of, uh, or of Mr. Rohrer, uh, Kenny Rohrer. And, uh, his is spelled a little different, right? He's got two R's in the middle. Yes. He does have yeah, two so R's. There was in the a middle. slight spelling at, change. Somewhere. Yeah. At some point in their history, they have, they, they changed the way it's spelled. And, uh, she would, she would say that this was literally the only time in her whole life that she would ever hear her father swear was when retelling this story and he would <laughs> laugh and he would actually use the line son of a bitch, even though it was again, he was a minister and didn't, oh, really? didn't like swearing, but it, it, he must've became a minister after his time with, uh, because you know, you get the feeling like it, like it feels, it sells the folklore point. You know what I mean? Like that's this is what happened at his funeral. That that drunk hillbilly. You, no matter what, how you tell the story, you just want to tell it even more grandiose every time. Like oh, yeah. this time, the guy had a minor hat on and he was carrying a mandolin, <laughs> and, he, and he fell down afterwards. He said, "Charlie Poole is a banjo playing son of a bitch," and he passed out this well, time. The, or you know what I mean? Like you just want to make it better every time. Well, the, he, 
I mean, Charlie Poole seemed to have a lot of stories like that anyway. So, you know, I don't know how many of these were actually like overblown. Yeah. So this this was all in research of a very specific source called uh, Kenny by Kenny Rohrer called Rambling Blues, the life and songs of Charlie Poole. So if you really want to check more out about Charlie Poole and you want to see what it's really like to be a rock and roll badass. By all means, this book is supposed to be uh, really, really good. Is it good. a book or just a, a like? Because the one I found, it was titled the same, but it was like a ten-page like insert or something. It, it may very well be an insert. I actually, was, I didn't do my uh, my actual research on that. I I may have failed on that. If it's just an insert, by all means, it's just easier to read. It's it's a, it's a quick read, but it was, it's a fun read. Well, I don't really have a whole lot on the cemetery or on the cemetery stuff on his funeral stuff. But he was buried in Woodlawn Cemetery in Spray in North Carolina with an unmarked grave. Goddamn unmarked grave. Unmarked graves. Give just... these motherfuckers a marked grave. It ain't so hard to spell someone's name on a piece of rock well, and maybe... put it on their final motherfucking resting place. Maybe that just wasn't the tradition back then. I don't know, but it's definitely, uh, it's definitely a common thing. Yeah, yeah, God, I feel like we're now at more people who don't have marked graves than actually have marked graves that we've researched well... this season. In 1966, some guy named Rodney McElroy, Elrea, M-C-E-L-R-E-A, I don't know. McElrea. Yeah, he is. <laughs> No, that's definitely not how it's spelled. I was making a joke. But he's definitely Irish, so I don't know. Maybe some Irish person can help us out. But he, he launched a, a fundraising campaign, finally raised enough money to put a fine Grant headstone on there, erected over uh, Charlie Poole. And it was uh, it had a banjo engraved on it and a small picture of Charlie Poole. And the marker reads, Erected and Dedicated by Rodney McElrea. You put your own fucking name yeah. on it, dude. North Ireland and Readers of Country News and Views. <laughs> what the fuck? They put a magazine name on it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. See, I was like, I was going to say, that's such a familiar story, man, but it's not. It's not the same. This is not Janis Joplin being inspired by your music and deciding that with her fame, she'd add a tombstone to your grave. This no, is not it was like, thing. it was this like, this is like by committee, this, this magazine like, We did took something nice by our magazine. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Like, we're going to intern you for the rest of existence, but also don't forget to buy North Ireland's magazine of choice. 2017. <laughs> All right. So really our, our big takeaway here, the last little bit we're going to look at here is Charlie Poole is a banjo picking son of a bitch. He really is. I don't know if you guys know this, but he is a banjo picking son of a bitch. And I just want to say that one more time because it's just so much fun to say, but really he's a rock and roll bastard. Yeah. He had eight, fucking bandmates in his band over a five year space something like yeah yeah like he his brother-in-law left the band because he stole from him (laughs) the other main guy left only stole from him for booze yeah for booze the other main guy left literally because he couldn't stand playing with charlie pool and his antics (laughs) charlie pool accepted his final job in hollywood to revive his career and he took that money and he drank himself to fucking death yeah, and it doesn't even end there. Honestly, there's tons of stories about him drinking, but he, yeah, I, uh, people loved him. Like he was, didn't he break his banjo over a cop's head? I've got, I'm going, I'm getting to that, but I got some other stories. Oh shit! I, okay, you I think ruined I, it. For sorry, me. I'm, I, I thought <laughs> I thought this was the end. No, I, I this is the end, but I've got some stories. All right, okay, well, uh, but and so like Charlie Poole was a banjo picking son of a bitch. He, he also seemed like he was tried to be a nice guy too, for the most part, like. He'd go over to this blind girl's house and play for her. 
You know, there's stories of, of him giving a little boy a silver dollar so he could go to the circus. One day he came over to uh, Roy Harvey's house with a collie puppy hidden in his coat. He brought it for Roy's uh, sixth son, Philip, who, de- who did a- end up passing away. But when Mrs. Harvey asked where he got the dog, he told her where he stole it from. Stole a, stole he the kid stole, a puppy. He stole the kid a puppy. So dude's like fucking Robin Hood with a banjo <laughs> and a whole fifth of liquor. Well, she did make him take the dog back, but still. Oh, come on. Let, let the kid have the. Well, the kid died. Oh, after. So they kept the puppy until the kid died. Then That's she's what like, it seems like. Yeah. All right. My kid's not going to use it anymore. Take it back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, you stole it? Yeah. Mm, well, now that he's dead, I don't need the dog here to remind me. Say lovey. <laughs> And these are just kind of random stories through his life. But like uh, one time he visited his brother Leroy and wife Zula with uh, Posey Roar. Posey Roar had never met his brother or his wife. So, you know, they're hanging out for a little while. And Charlie announces he was going to step up the street to see a fellow. Probably code for getting some whiskey. Charlie didn't return for about a month. And Rory had to sit there patiently waiting for him. <laughs> he had to wait for a month at their house yeah all he time. just was like i'm uh, gonna go you know get me a little something to drink and they just took off oh man see i've, I've had a lot of asshole musician <laughs> friends but a month at somebody's house while you're just rambling across the country for people you just met too yeah. like he left that same day oh my god could you imagine that's so uncomfortable like, like i imagine it starts with him drinking some whiskey and then someone going i know where we can get some more yeah let's go get some and then it just like yeah try- snowballs into this thing and he wakes up one day and goes oh where am i yeah, or he's in a bar one night telling a story like, "Oh, I'm in a band. I got my, we, I got my, my guitar player right here." You have to remember somewhere. this is around Prohibition era too. So, oh, so he had to go meet a shady dude behind yeah, a dumpster. It was, to get a, it that was like booze. a drug deal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So now, the last story I got of him in 1925 while playing in a bootlegger joint in Virginia, the police raided the place, and Charlie he decided to fight him instead. He broke a banjo. He broke his banjo over one officer while beating the other one with Roy's walking stick. Makes me wonder if it's that legendary Orpheum 3 special <laughs> that we talked about earlier. Because this is now after, like, you can't get those original versions anymore. I, ju- I just want to know how he didn't kill the officer because a banjo body is heavy and it's got jagged metal parts on it. Yeah, if you hit him the wrong way, that's probably the end of your life. So, I don't know. He pro- It probably was like a side glance, then everybody blew it out of proportion. But then, after that, he tried to take the gun of another officer. Oh, you don't do that. And apparently the gun went off. Supposedly it left Charlie tasting lead in his mouth. Don't know how true this is. You never see a scar on his face. They didn't mention his face being all bloody when he was in court. I don't know, but supposedly that's what happened. Huh. Yeah. Maybe tasting lead's just like a euphemism for the smell around when the gunfire goes off <laughs> close to you. Because it has like that, that gunpowdery resonance It, could, it to could be. It could be. You know, uh, when he was in court, the judge noticed he didn't have a lawyer. And the judge asked if he could use a good lawyer. Charlie replied, and I quote, no, your honor. I could use some good wit- uh, some good witnesses, though. <laughs> and the courtroom did exactly what you did they erupted into laughter <laughs> see yep that's that right there is the point i'm driving home charlie pool is a banjo picking son of a bitch son of a bitch well and so an arrangement was made for him to pay a fine instead of facing jail time 
And Charlie's wife, Luemma, paid the fine as she kept money all the time. The line he used in one of his songs, if I lose, I don't care. And that's my last dude check out this song is if I lose, I don't care. <laughs> that sounds like a fine, fine piece. Well, I want to thank you all for coming out this evening. Charlie Poole was a real inspiration of a man. You learn exactly what not to be and what to be all at the same time. If you're out there picking banjos and you're a son of a bitch yourself, don't steal. But, you know, if you're going to drink, drink. Don't leave your friends at anybody's house for more than a month. Always be a banjo-picking son of a bitch. Always be a banjo-picking son of a bitch. Have a good night, guys. Thank you for listening. Do check out the song. Seriously, thank you guys so much for coming out. Yeah, thank you guys. And if you want more, check out our social media. We got Facebook, we got Twitter, and we got Spotify. That's right. If you want to do check out the song, do check out our Spotify because we're making playlists for every episode. Yeah, if you want more after the episode, listen to the Spotify playlist. We've got all the songs we recommended and then some. If you like us a lot, give us a high rating on whatever platform you look at. And if you got any artists you want to suggest, let us know. We would love to make an episode about them. Yeah, so have a good evening. Bye.